0: Imagine, demand, and build a world transformed.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to TWT20. My name is Charlie Clark, I'm an organizer for the World Transformed Um, and yeah, welcome to Healthcare in Crisis, Building International Solidarity. I'm just going to do a really quick intro before I hand over to Chris from the National Nurses United, um, who's going to be chairing this really exciting international panel. Um, It's really exciting that this today, this very day, is the fifth anniversary of the World Transformed, Um, and I, you know, couldn't be like more excited to have such a great session to celebrate that. I'm co-hosting this event with. The National Nurses United Union from the US who have been a brilliant partner with us over the last few years. Um, NNU, National Nurses United, is uh, the largest union of nurses in the US. They're an organising union who apply their skills to representing members and to champion universal he- health care by driving forward the Medical for All campaign and they're also a really excellent example Um, of a trade union at the forefront of doing amazing political education, both with their members and more broadly. So we're really glad to be partnering with them and to have organized this session tonight. Um, Just before we begin, a few announcements. Um, To make this session more accessible, we'll be using a live transcription service called Otter. Um, Attendees using Otter will have to follow a link that I'm just about to post in in the chat box. Um, And if you've got any issues with that, um, just uh, contact one of our tech people. Um, Secondly, the World Transform massively relies on on your support to continue our our work and go on for hopefully another five festivals. We've already had a hundred people sign up this year to our supporters network, but we need like around about 50 more to carry on our work for the next year. So if you do if you do have a bit of um, extra money lying around, and if you really believe that this kind of work is is important, um, please do consider becoming a supporter. And I'll post um, that link in the, in the chat in a moment. And then finally, just a few chat principles. We want everyone to feel really welcome um, in in this space. Um, But, you know, and we want everyone's voices to be heard, but please just bear in mind when you're engaging in the chat, like, to not use any inappropriate language, any unkind language, and please don't spam. Um, If anyone strays too far from from those principles, we might um, remove you. Hopefully that won't happen. Um, Yeah, there the announcement's done. I'm gonna hand over to Chris Nielsen, who's a political educator from the National Nurses United Union. Um, who I've worked on to help put this session together, who's going to chair the event um, and hopefully it's going to be
0: as, as exciting as it looks. Hi, uh, thanks a lot, Charlie. So hello, everyone. Welcome to this session. As Charlie said, my name is Chris Nielsen. I'm an educator with National Nurses United, I'm based here in Oakland, California, and I've got the pleasure of moderating uh, this session. NNU is really proud to be a partner of TWT because we know that political education is key to building the powerful progressive unions and social movements that we need to transform our world and we're just delighted to be uh, involved again for the third year in a row and on TWT's fifth anniversary. I also want to give a shout out to Nurses United UK and to Just Treatment uh, who are also co-sponsoring this session. Uh, I'll introduce our amazing panelists in just a moment, but uh, first I wanna offer just a few quick words to frame our discussion. We know that COVID-19 is the biggest crisis of our lifetimes. I mean, really we're facing multiple compounding crises right now. The pandemic, economic crises around the world, increasing racism, nationalism, and attacks on democracy, and of course the climate catastrophe that frames everything. In a sense, COVID-19 is a crisis without borders. The virus itself recognizes no nationality, race, or ethnicity. It doesn't recognize immigration status. And it's reminded us that we're one people, no matter where we live. But we also know that the impacts of COVID-19 have varied widely across the planet. Here in the US, around 1,000 people are still dying every day. We have 25% of the world's COVID deaths, even though we make up less than 5% of the global population. And seven months into this pandemic, our nurses and healthcare workers still don't have the protections they need to keep themselves safe and to protect their patients and their families. We're gonna hear from nurses and patient advocates in the UK about similar struggles. In both of our countries, our governments have been unable or unwilling to do what it takes to protect us. But we also know that it doesn't have to be this way. Countries like South Korea, Vietnam, New Zealand, Cuba have mounted very effective pandemic responses and they've been able to avoid a lot of the economic and social impacts that we've seen elsewhere. The reason for their success is simple. These mostly socialist and social democratic nations decided to respond to the crisis by following science and by marshaling all the resources at their disposal to protect people, not profits. And not just their own citizens, but people around the world. By contrast, the ruling class in the US and the UK decided to prioritize capital over workers and our families. In reality, our capacity to respond to the pandemic was undermined years ago by their decisions to defund our public health infrastructure, privatize our healthcare systems, attack our unions, and cut social protections for workers and marginalized people. Similar decisions left countries like Brazil and India vulnerable to the coronavirus. And not coincidentally, they've seen the most cases and the most deaths after the US. And like in the US and UK, their ruling classes are trying to distract from the failures uh, of their responses by attacking the left and by scapegoating racialized others inside and outside their borders. This toxic mix of racism, nationalism, and neoliberal capitalism can only lead to more suffering and death. But we can still course correct. We can learn from the countries that have taken a people-first approach to COVID-19. We could fight to win the structural reforms that we need to heal our pre-existing inequalities and protect the lives and the livelihoods of healthcare workers, patients, and our communities. And we could solve this global crisis by building global solidarity. We can cooperate across borders to beat this pandemic and overcome the threat of nationalism. We have to do this because none of us are going to be safe until all of us are. Nurses and other frontline healthcare workers and patient advocates know this, and they're perfectly positioned to meet the moment and lead the movements that we need to transform our healthcare systems, to transform our political and economic systems, and to build a better world, one based on care and solidarity. And so now to talk to us more about how we can do that, I'm delighted to introduce our amazing panel of nurse leaders, grassroots activists, and scholars from around the world. First, we're going to hear from Deborah Berger, president of National Nurses United here in the US. Deborah will be followed by Rachel Ambrose, a leader in Nurses United UK. Up next will be Izzy Jani Friend, a patient leader with Just Treatment, also in the UK. After Izzy, we're gonna hear from Hermes Torres Font, a nurse and member of Cuba's Henry Reeve International Medical Brigade. We'll then hear from Indian historian Vijay Prashad, director of the Tricontinental Institute. And our concluding speaker will be Tobita Chow, director of Justice is Global here in the US. After we hear from all our speakers, we'll have some time for discussion and for questions from the audience. So, okay, uh, Deborah, I'll turn the time over to you now.
2: Hello everyone. I'm Deborah Berger, a registered nurse and president of National Nurses United, the largest nurses union in the United States. Nurses take an oath to care and advocate for all patients and as union nurses we know that an injury to one is an injury to all. That's especially true during a pandemic. We know that healthcare workers are the first line of defense against a public health crisis. One thing that countries that have responded effectively to COVID have in common is that they invest in their healthcare workers. They give them the resources they need to protect themselves while they care for their patients and their communities. In the U.S., our employers and our government abandoned us. Instead of giving us the adequate staffing and personal protective equipment, they left us to fend for ourselves, forcing healthcare workers to reuse disposable PPE or even don bandanas and trash bags as they care for dangerously high numbers of patients. Millions of Americans are unable to get the care they need. Going into the pandemic, 86 million had no or little insurance. And now, because we tie health care insurance to employment in this country, an additional 27 million people have lost their health care along with their jobs in the coronavirus recession. The Trump administration bears enormous blame for all of this, but it's also the result of decades of organized abandonment. Over the last 40 years, the ruling class has restructured our health system, really, our whole society, to put profits before people. That is the reason over- 200,000 Americans have died of COVID, including 214 nurses and 11 members of my union, in addition to over 1,500 other healthcare workers. And this is surely an undercount. Many of their deaths could have been avoided if those in power had heeded the warnings of frontline health workers early in the crisis. NNU is a founding member of Global Nurses United, a federation of nurse and healthcare workers unions in 29 nations. Our GNU siblings in places like Italy and South Korea warned us early on of the coming crisis and shared lessons of how to respond. In turn, we shared the latest science-based research on what protections healthcare workers needed to keep ourselves and others safe. We also appealed repeatedly to the CDC and the WHO to improve their safety guidelines. Nurses have always ad- nurses always advocate for the precautionary principle which as you know says, follow the highest standard of protection until you can prove it's safe to follow a lower standard. We demanded the frontline healthcare workers across the US and around the world be given at minimum N95 respirators, face shields and impermeable gowns and gloves and all of the emerging science on COVID virus has supported our demands when the gnu nurses in new zealand and elsewhere took this information and pressured their government to follow science their governments responded and ensured that healthcare workers got the ppe they needed why hasn't this happened in the u.s is it because employers and government agencies don't believe in science Well, maybe some don't, but the bigger issue is that it's not profitable to listen to nurses and to follow science, just like it wasn't profitable to prepare for a pandemic like this before it arrived. For years, our government failed to stockpile critical medical supplies. Hospital cut costs by following just-in-time practices and stocking just enough PPE to get by for a couple of days under normal conditions. Hospital systems have for years been closing facilities in rural areas and poor urban communities across the U.S. This, along with generations of racial uh, structural racism has contributed to the hugely disproportionate impact of COVID 19 on people of color. For years, healthcare employers have forced us to do more with less. Even now, during the pandemic, they're laying off hundreds of thousands of healthcare workers as patients pro- postpone lucrative elective surgeries and procedures. Our public health infrastructure has undergone years of cuts and privatization. 55,000 public health jobs have been cut in the U.S., since 2008 seven months into the pandemic we still don't have enough tests even nurses can't get tested and contract contact tracing has is virtually non-existent if the coronavirus has taught us anything it's that there's a deep contradiction between profit and precaution between capitalism and care. I know it's a similar story in the UK, Brazil, and other countries where neoliberal governments have subordinated human needs to the demands of the market. Extreme inequality, decades of cuts to public health and social welfare and privatization of healthcare also left their populations vulnerable to the virus. These are global trends, and it's going to take a global response to reverse them. But instead, right wing nationalists around the world are trying to keep us divided. The Trump administration has tried to deflect responsibility for its disastrous pandemic response by blaming China and pulling out of the World Health Organization. This has led to an anti-Asian racism here and it will undermine international efforts to cooperate on things like PPE distribution and vaccine development. The Trump administration has declared it will take an America first approach and not join the global effort to develop and equitably distribute COVID vaccine. Vaccine nationalism, is a threat to billions of workers and marginalized people around the world, especially in the global south. But it's also a self-defeating strategy because no one country can save itself while ignoring the rest of the world. As the World Health Organization director, General Pedros has explained, If we don't protect the highest risk people from the virus everywhere, and at the same time, we can't stabilize health systems and rebuild the global economy. Nationalism and racism are a threat to us all in the time of COVID. Instead of a vaccine nationalism, I'm sorry, instead of a vaccine nationally, we need uh, global vaccine solidarity. We need to fight to make healthcare a right for all people by defending universal public healthcare systems where they already exist and by winning them where we don't have them. But international solidarity and cooperation won't come from the top down movements of nurses and patients and working-class people around the world must build that solidarity from the bottom up we'll have to work together to force our countries to act in their own interest by acting in the interest of all humanity the good news is we've already started through formations like the global nurses united nurses are forging international alliances to protect ourselves our patients and our planet and we'll hear from other panelists about the amazing work that they've um, been in doing in their own countries and across borders the path forward won't be easy but this crisis has opened up an incredible opportunity The virus has taught nurses and other essential workers around the world that our fates are interconnected, that we have far more in common with each other than with the bosses and politicians that treat us as if we're expendable. Let's remember this sense of solidarity forever, and let's keep working together until we beat this pandemic make healthcare a universal right, and build a better world based on an economy of care. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Deborah. We're so grateful for the nurses and we're so grateful for your leadership in this time of crisis. And thank you so much for that rousing call to global solidarity. Up next is Rachel Ambrose. Rachel is a mental health nurse and leader in Nurses United UK. She's passionate about inclusion, neurodiversity, and anti-racism, and she co-founded the Nurses of Colour
3: Network as part of her work with Nurses United. Uh, Go ahead, Rachel.
4: And I qualified as a mental health nurse over 15 years ago now. I normally work with children and young people with acute mental health needs, um, but I'm currently on maternity leave um, and work as a full time mom to three children, including baby Amelia, who may join us at some point as she's still awake. Um, and as. Cr- uh,
3: front- our
4: patients. And I wanted to start off by saying how I've attended some really inspirational TWT events over the past few years. And I was initially too nervous to even ask a question or to comment. So it is really crazy to think that I am now actually participating on this panel. Um, And I feel honoured to have been asked to speak tonight with such a great lineup. Um, We ensure healthcare workers are protected. and when we have persuasive conversations with friends and colleagues in our real lives. Many of the Western countries struggling with the highest rates of infection are the UK and United States, where our failing governments have put in place decades of cuts to health and social which have reinforced inequality within our communities has ensured our class divide is still vibrant and thriving. And you only need to look at who it was in the north of our country that we
3: and respond better
4: if we're to deal with it. I attended my first Labour Party conference five years ago because I was a staff nurse with ten home to me the harsh unfairness of the north-south divide. Even before COVID-19, the hospital my granddad stayed in was unable up the M1 to bathe and shave him myself to give him the dignity he deserved. I also remember the differences in services he received when we fought for a couple of weeks of respite in a care home with a straw because he was cared for. He no longer required a catheter to go to the bathroom because he was cared for and he was able to walk a few steps instead of being...
3: Hey, it looks like
0: we are losing Rachel. Um, Why don't we pause and move on to um, Izzy and then Rachel, we'll try to get your uh, connection reestablished. So I'll go ahead and introduce now Izzy Johnny Friend. Izzy is a cystic fibrosis patient and a freelance writer. She became a patient leader for Just Treatment because she believes that profit should not drive access to medications that could change lives. Go ahead, Izzy.
5: Hi, um, my name's Izzy Johnnyfriend, and I'm based in the UK. I have cystic fibrosis. I'm a health writer and a patient leader for Just Treatment, a campaigning organization which seeks to put patients before profits and politics, helping gain access to medications and fight for our healthcare systems. Just last year, we played our part in ending a five year long fight for access to a life changing cystic fibrosis drug or can The drug company Vertex had put such a high price on, on the drug that our national health service simply could not afford it. We ran a high profile campaign led by patients and parents of kids with CF demanding that the government uses its power to break Vertex's monopoly. We helped parents and patients to set up a buyer's club so it could buy a generic version of the medication that was made in Argentina, putting huge pressure on Vertex. Our campaigning led to a deal being made between the drug company and the NHS. Since that campaign last year, the whole world has changed. It's been six months since I went into isolation to shield from COVID-19. Due to my cystic fibrosis, I fall into the extremely vulnerable, high-risk category. CF is a life-threatening chronic condition that causes passageways in my lungs and digestive system to become blocked with thick, sticky mucus, over time leading to fatal lung damage. So COVID-19 places a serious risk for already damaged lungs. Due to the pandemic, all my cares were moved to online video clinics and phone calls. This means I've mostly had to manage my illness alone, leaving me very worried to get unwell. This period has been very devastating and the nature of the virus and having to avoid people and places has had a big impact on my mental health. And unless sufficient treatments are developed, I will remain shielding and socially distancing until a vaccine is available. The need for a vaccine is essential. Cases are beginning to rise again as lockdown measures have been relaxing over the past months in the UK. Any sense of normality and back to normal we desire will only happen once we have a vaccine. During the first few months of the pandemic, my cystic fibrosis ward became the COVID ward at my hospital, meaning that all the nurses and doctors who usually care for CF patients were looking after those seriously affected by the pandemic. Speaking to my doctors and nurses over the phone, I could hear how overwhelming this was for them, rushing off their feet and saving lives while lacking sufficient PPE and safety. How can we expect them to take care of us if we don't take care of them? Once healthcare workers have what they need, safe working conditions and priority access to a vaccine, patients will be safer. This will not only relieve the burden and fears from key workers, but it will make all of us safer. However, drug companies will always prioritize those who pay most for a vaccine, allowing rich countries like the US and UK to buy up vaccine candidates before they've even been proven to work, meaning there will be a lack of availability for nurses, the elderly, and other people who are at high risk. This is not okay. Public money is being poured into researching, developing and manufacturing potential vaccine candidates in a way that we've never seen before. But we know from experience that public contributions will largely be ignored as big pharma seek to make high profits and governments fail to attach stringent conditions into funding. The UK government has put tens of millions of pounds into the AstraZeneca vaccine, and the US government has put over 10 billion. Taxpayers, Are covering all the costs of the vaccine and while AstraZeneca have agreed that the vaccine will be available at a cost price during the pandemic we have no clarity over the price that we'll be paying long term once the pandemic is deemed to be over. AstraZeneca hold the rights to the vaccine and drug companies have proven time and time again that when they hold the power they'll charge astronomical prices in order to make a profit. We need governments to take action to make sure that vaccines will be affordable and accessible to the people who need them most wherever they live in the world. Whilst people continue to get sick and die, lose their loved ones and their livelihoods, we know from experience that big pharma won't think twice about making a profit on our suffering. We must make sure that everybody who needs this vaccine will be able to get it at a price that doesn't bankrupt our NHS or other healthcare systems around the world. We can't allow market forces to dictate the value of our lives but instead the UK and other governments are making advanced purchasing agreements with other pharmaceutical companies, effectively forward purchasing as yet unproven vaccines in the hope that they'll be effective. To date, the UK has forward purchased more vaccines per head of population than any other country in the world, with 340 million doses purchased or around five per person. Vaccine nationalism is harmful and it's not ethical during a global pandemic. We need to ensure international solidarity and we must come together across borders. Our safety depends on the safety of everyone. And whilst the UK hoards medication, we forget about other countries. With rich countries like the US and UK buying large supplies of vaccines and little support for the COVID technology access pool, an initiative which would allow companies in different countries to manufacture the vaccine without having to negotiate with different patents or technology holders poorer countries will be left with fewer options. The UK has now signed up to COVAX, another initiative that's trying to ensure a more equitable distribution of vaccines, while at the same time undermining this by agreeing vaccine deals that will mean fewer doses will be left for the scheme. I have family that are living in India who've been unable to leave their flats and homes for six months. I don't want to have access to these medications before they do. To me, that's disgusting and unfair. Our lives in the West are not more valuable than the rest of the world." At the end of May, Patients, Just Treatment, Global Justice Now, and others wrote to AstraZeneca with a series of questions that covered issues such as the transparency of the deal, affordability safeguards, how they will prevent non-patent based monopoly protections, and whether they would agree to license the COVID, COVID technology access pool. At the end of June, AstraZeneca responded with a statement that answered none of our questions and simply reiterated information that was already in the public domain. Right now, we're discussing how we can ramp up the pressure on AstraZeneca, both publicly and behind the scenes. We also need to put pressure on the government to release the deal that they've made with AstraZeneca. They're under obligation to publish deals worth over 10,000 within 28 days. We look, we have, at Just Treatment, we've launched a petition and MP action calling for this secret deal to be made public and asking MPs to write to both AstraZeneca and the government to make this demand. And we've also asked them for clarity over the post pandemic vaccine price. At Just Treatment, we've been holding calls and having discussions with our patient leaders and volunteers about the next steps. We've written to AstraZeneca again to ask them to have a meeting with us and some of our patient leaders to answer questions from patients and those affected by COVID. We want to push them for answers, but assuming we don't get any, like last time, we have plans to ramp up our campaign by getting more public and media coverage. We've taken on Big Pharma and won before. Our Plan B campaign for All Can Be shows that we can successfully fight to gain access to essential medications. We did it then and we can do it again with a COVID vaccine. The pandemic has shown us just how important our healthcare systems are and how vital it is that access to drugs are equitable and fair. This is a global pandemic. We need a global effort in demanding the best for our healthcare workers and a global effort to challenge a drug development system that is preventing the people who need drugs from getting them. Without these things, the pandemic will pose as an even bigger threat. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Thank you, Izzy. That was that was great, and something you said really, really uh, stuck with me. Uh, what you said about not allowing market forces to dictate the value of our lives, and I couldn't agree more. And it's inspiring to hear about how you, uh, Just Treatment, have taken on those market forces, taken on uh, the force of big pharma, and won. Uh, And we can learn a lot from that as we move forward and do the same uh, as we work together to overcome the resistance of big pharma to making uh, an eventual COVID vaccine globally available to all. Well, why don't we go ahead? I think we have Rachel back on the stream. Let's bring Rachel back up so she can uh, finish her remarks. Thanks. Here we go,
3: Rachel. Go ahead.
4: Right. Thank you. Sorry about that. I think my...
3: Well, looks like we might still be having some issues. Rachel, are you
0: there?
4: Yeah, I'm still here.
0: Okay, let's let's try and go ahead. Uh, we'll try just a, a, another couple minutes. And if we need to, we can just hop off again and you can try to reestablish
3: contact and we'll come back to you after the next speaker.
4: Oh, okay, thanks Chris. Come to me the harsh unfairness of the north-south divide and even before Covid-19 the hospital my granddad stayed in was unable to offer him a bath because there wasn't the staff and I remember driving the 170 miles up the N1 to bathe and shave in myself to give him the dignity he deserved. I also remember the difference in services he received when we fought for a couple of weeks of respite in a care home close to where I live. He went home instead of being hoisted into bed because he was cared for. He was able to get the attention and humanity he deserved And it's something we all deserve and the biggest irony of this was that the care home he stayed in near my home was actually owned by a family based in leeds but they didn't build the type of care home he went to back there covid has highlighted this government's priorities they have not protected the health and well-being of us they've protected the profits of their private companies infesting our healthcare sector They've allowed our public health and care services to deteriorate whilst creating the perfect opportunity for companies to flourish as they pick up the broken pieces. It doesn't have to be this way. Our families deserve dignity and respect. Our children shouldn't be waiting to access mental health treatment. Parents of children with long-term health needs should not have to fight the system meant to be there to support them. And the aftermath of COVID-19 provides us with an opportunity to finally rectify these injustices. And if this government can't see this, then healthcare professionals and patients are going to have to make it happen ourselves. Nurses United is a vehicle for us to take actions to create systems which gives us all the freedom to be healthy. And I'll talk through three of our recent campaigns. So when Matt Hancock told the General Secretary of our union, the RCN, that he didn't know how many nurses had died. We did because we kept account. Together with Nursing Notes, we worked together to document every life lost to ensure that no one is forgotten. This created a political crisis for this government and when Helen Waitley was doing her usual on Good Morning Britain and couldn't answer why their data was so behind ours. This data has been shared around the world, as we were able to show how COVID-19 disproportionately affected people of colour within our NHS because of the racism that infects all layers of our society. And that's why myself and another nurse, Sahala, co-founded the Nurses of Colour Network, in response to the frustration we experienced at the deaths of our colleagues and the murder of George Floyd we've created a safe space for nurses to meet to discuss our experiences of racism to turn that into action in our workplaces to build an anti-racist NHS and that's what we're currently that's why we're currently building a racism reporting tool so that when any people of colour are put at risk because of who they are, they'll be able to sound the alarm and demand that our employers prioritise the policies that we need to save lives. We never want to hear stories like those of our Filipino colleagues who felt forced to work on hot wards because they thought their visas might be at risk. Most recently, we led the charge for the real for, um, the first real pay rise for NHS workers in decades by calling for a 15% pay rise and supporting frontline workers to not only attend but plan over 36 demonstrations across the country with 20,000 attending. Our leadership meant that whereas three years ago we were struggling to get our unions to campaign for an award that would meet inflation, now we have Unite, and the GMB going for 15% and the RCN not far behind on 12.5. Our model and our work shows that when you listen to the grassroots and let them lead a campaign and actually organise, it works. And as we move forward, we need to all learn the lessons from our colleagues in other countries and expand on the building blocks of international solidarity we have in this room today. We need to be organising in our workplaces, even in a pandemic. um, We need to ensure that we have the power to get what our nurses and our patients need. If this virus has taught us anything, it should be that no one is safe until
3: we are all
4: who of cuts. We need to invest in having a health system that can actually promote people's health instead of struggling to pick up the pieces after everything our society has done to them. We need to actually care for our carers, pay them the wage they had 10 years ago when we didn't have 100,000 vacancies within our NHS, and most importantly, we need to make sure that we have a second, third and fourth stockpile of PPE so that we have no more stories about nurses having to choose who got the last mask. And all of this is achievable if we organize.
3: Rachel, thank
0: you so much. You appear to be cutting out again, but we uh, were all I think really Um, inspired by your words about the need for uh, grassroots organizing and the power of what can happen when you actually do the organizing and what uh, an organizing uh, union can do to lead the broader labor movement in uh, the U.K., to step up its game and to um, work for, for the protections of, uh, of its members. So, thank you so much, Rachel. Um, we're going to go ahead and move on now to Hermes Torres Font. And I'm really pleased to introduce Hermes. Hermes has been a nurse and professor at the Hermanos Amejeras Teaching Hospital in Havana for nearly 40 years. In March of this year, Hermes was appointed to the National Task Force that coordinated Cuba's domestic pandemic response. And in May, he deployed to the Middle East with the Henry Reeve International Medical Brigade. Uh, Hermes is going to be joined on screen by Guillermo Banuelos, a translator with the Progressive International
6: Translators Network. Uh, go ahead, Hermes. Thank you. Estimados panelistas, Los primeros indicios de la pandemia y la posibilidad de la aparición de casos en Cuba llevaron a la máxima dirección del país a poner en práctica de manera inmediata un grupo de medidas sustentadas en la organización de nuestro sistema de salud bajo el principio de que la salud es un derecho del pueblo y una responsabilidad del Estado cubano
7: The first evidences of the pandemic and the possibility of cases appearing in Cuba drove the higher authorities of the country to immediately implement a series of measures supported in the organization of our public health system under the principle that public health is a people's right and a responsibility of the Cuban state
6: ara ello se creó un programa de capacitación para la asistencia médica específica a la enfermedad tratamiento médico según los protocolos establecidos al efecto y la actualización en el campo de la bioseguridad que nos permite disminuir los riesgos y realizar un uso eficiente y efectivo de los recursos adquiridos para la protección de todos los trabajadores de la salud.
7: In order to reach this goal, a training program was created to specifically deal with the condition, the medical treatment necessary according with the protocols established and the upgrades in the field of biosafety which allow allow us to reduce the risk and also use efficiently and effectively the resources Secure for the protection of all workers in the national health system.
6: En la intervención realizada por el presidente Díaz Canel ante la Asamblea de la ONU, y cito: La aplicación de esas medidas, junto al conocimiento acumulado en más de 60 años de ingentes esfuerzos para crear y fortalecer un sistema de salud de calidad y alcance universal, así como la investigación y el desarrollo científico han permitido no solo preservar el derecho a la salud de todos los ciudadanos, sin excepción, sino enfrentar la pandemia en mejores condiciones.
7: President Miguel Díaz-Canel, in the speech to the United Nations Assembly, said, "Quote: The implementation of these measures, alongside with the know-how accumulated in over 60 years of huge efforts to create and strengthen a health system of quality and universal reach." as well as the research and scientific developments these have allowed not only the preservation of the citizens right to healthcare without exception but also to be able to face the pandemic in better conditions
6: la organización de nuestro sistema de salud ha permitido garantizar la atención médica en nuestro país y aportar de manera solidaria nuestra experiencia que permitió en el año 2005 que nuestro comandante en jefe Friedka constituyera la brigada especializada en el enfrentamiento a grandes epidemias y desastres Henry Reed y por la labor que ha venido desempeñando en estos años y en especial frente a esa pandemia muchas organizaciones claman por el otorgamiento del premio Nobel de la paz 2021 lo que agradecemos altamente The organization of our national health system has allowed us
7: to guarantee the medical attention in our country and to share in solidarity our experiences, which allowed our commander-in-chief Fidel Castro in the year 2005 to establish the specialized brigade to face epidemic and disasters, Henry Reeve. Due to the task that this brigade has undertaken in the last number of years, and especially during this pandemic, many organizations requested be granted the Peace Nobel Prize 2021. We are grateful for this recognition.
6: En esta ocasión se conformaron las brigadas con médicos especialistas, enfermeros intensivistas y enfermeros generales capacitados en la atención a pacientes con COVID.
7: In these opportunity the brigades were staffed with medical doctors with specializations, intensive care nurses and general nurses trained in the attention of COVID patients.
6: Además, también contamos con presencia médica cubana en más de 63 países de América. Europa, Asia y África. We also count
7: with medical Cuban presence in more than 63 countries in America, Europe, Asia and Africa.
6: En nuestra experiencia personal cumplimos misión en Emiratos Árabes Unidos como miembro de una brigada de 600 colaboradores de la salud y se cumplieron funciones en la atención a pacientes hospitalizados con COVID en cualquiera de sus estadios de la enfermedad, en la rehabilitación de pacientes Y en la realización del PCR en la comunidad.
7: En nuestra personal experiencia, hemos fulfilled la misión en el Emiratos Árabes Unidos con 600, 600 miembros de la Brigada de Health Support Workers. Hemos ayudado con la atención de COVID a los hospitalizados en los stages de la rehabilitación de los pacientes, así como well los as protocolos PCR en la comunidad local. Community.
6: Hemos participado en el asesoramiento de programas y organización de la atención a pacientes. Se han intercambiado experiencias y conocimientos en el tratamiento y cuidado de los pacientes en las diferentes etapas de la enfermedad, incluyendo la atención a pacientes graves o pacientes de la zona roja. Hemos participado en la pesquisa y realización de PCR en las comunidades. Todo esto con gran aceptación de la población y buenos resultados en todos los países en los que se ha trabajado.
7: We have participated in the coaching of programs and in the organization of the attention to patients. We have exchanged experiences and know-how in regards to the treatment and care of patients at different stages, including the attention of patients in grave conditions or patients out of, of the red zone. We have participated in the inquiry and completion of PCR in the communities all of these with great acceptance on the part of the population and good results
6: in all countries in which we have worked como resultado de ese aporte hoy muchas personas en el mundo dentro de ellas personalidades y organizaciones sociales e internacionales se suman a la propuesta de conceder el premio Nobel por la paz a la brigada internacional médica especializada en situaciones de desastre grave Henry Ruiz como reconocimiento a su labor
7: As a result of this contribution, today many people in the world, among them personalities, social and international organizations, add their support to granting the Nobel Peace Prize to the International Medical Brigade Specialized in Disaster Situations and Grave Epidemics, Henry Reeve, in recognition of
2: its work.
6: Pero también debemos recordar que todo esto ocurre en medio del incremento de un grupo de medidas para arriesgar el bloqueo económico que mantiene el gobierno de Estados Unidos contra nuestro país por más de 60 años. Que en momentos como estos, en que la comunidad internacional se ha unido en esta batalla, su política de bloquear ha llevado a negar la entrada de donaciones de recursos necesarios para el enfrentamiento a la pandemia y el negarle al país la adquisición de equipos de ventilación pulmonal y medios para esta batalla con el objetivo de aficiar al pueblo cubano. But we must also remember that all of this takes place
7: in the midst of an increase of measures aimed at strengthening the economic blockade that the US government holds against our country for more than 60 years. Under the current circumstances in which the international community has united to battle the pandemic, this blockade has caused that donations of supplies necessary to face the pandemic be stopped. Also, these measures have not allowed our country to purchase ventilators and other supplies. It seems the only objective is to appreciate our country.
6: Como denunciara nuestro presidente en la pasada asamblea de la ONU, lo hemos logrado pese a las duras restricciones del prolongado bloqueo económico, comercial y financiero impuesto por el gobierno de Estados Unidos, recrudecido, recrudecido brutalmente en los dos últimos años, incluso en tiempos de pandemia. Como prueba de que ese es el componente esencial de su política de hostilidad hacia Cuba.
7: As our president has denounced in the past United Nations Assembly, Quote, we have achieved it in spite of the harsh restrictions imposed by the economic, commercial, and financial blockade laid down by the government of the United States. This blockade became even harsher in the last two years, including the current pandemic period. This is proof of the essential component of their policy of hostility toward Cuba end of the quote.
6: No obstante, ante las medidas coercitivas de Estados Unidos y aliados, Cuba ha adoptado un grupo de acciones para proteger al pueblo y en especial a los trabajadores para enfrentar esta enfermedad.
7: In spite of these measures of the US and allied countries, Cuba has adopted a group of measures to protect its people, especially its workers. To face this pandemic, such as
6: the approval de 20 medidas aprobadas en materia laboral salarial y de seguridad social dirigida fundamentalmente a la administración que tiene la obligación de implementarlo las mismas están refrentadas en el código del trabajo Ley 116. the approval of 20 measures in the areas of
7: labor salaries and social security aimed fundamentally to the authorities that have the mandate to implement them, they are supported in the Labor Code, Law 116.
6: El trabajo a distancia, dentro de ellas el teletrabajo, 557 mil trabajadores trabajan a distancia, lo que representa más de medio millón de trabajadores a los que se les garantiza el 100% de salario con un estipendio de alimentación garantizado de acuerdo a lo aprobado con el convenio del colectivo de trabajo en su centro laboral.
7: Work at a distance. Five hundred and fifty-seven thousand workers, which represent more than half a million workers, which have guaranteed one hundred percent of their salaries with the lunch stipend, as approved in the labor agreements of each work center.
6: Se aprobaron un grupo de medidas preventivas de protección. Los adultos mayores que son trabajadores activos se mantienen protegidos, e incluso los que no son aún estos mayores se protege por sus patologías de base.
7: A group of preventive measures were approved seniors that are active workers enjoy protection including others that may not be seniors are protected as well from current pathologies
6: los 42382 trabajadores que están en esta situación si trabajan a distancia se les mantiene el salario al 100% y a los que no se acogen como dice la ley después del 100% del salario del primer mes Se mantienen con el 60% hasta que se termine la pandemia. Of the
7: 42,382 workers in this situation, if they don't work from home, they still receive 100% of their salary, and the ones that do not fall under the legislation, after receiving 100% of their first month salary, they receive 60% until the pandemic is over.
6: El sindicato está jugando un papel fundamental en defender el derecho de los trabajadores, sobre todo en esta etapa. Los trabajadores con niños escolares que ahora están sin clases y en sus casas también se acogen a esta ley. Los trabajadores que se mantienen laborando en la la salud, la policía, el comercio y otros sectores clave y tienen hijos pequeños se mantienen al cuidado en los círculos infantiles.
7: The union is playing a fundamental role defending the right of the workers, especially at this stage. Workers with children attending school who are at home, not attending classes at this time, are also included in this legislation. Workers that are involved in the fields of health, police forces, or commerce, and other key sectors, and they have young children, they, the children, remain in the care of the child circles.
6: Los trabajadores que están en aislamiento preventivo por el coronavirus por 14 días o más en domicilio se les mantiene su salario. Y los trabajadores 53.573 interruptos en turismo, transporte, industria y otros sectores se les priorizó su reubicación laboral y se les paga el salario de la nueva plaza. De no ser reubicados se les mantiene su salario básico al 100%.
7: There are 62,386 protect, protected workers. Workers that are in preventive isolation in their home due to the coronavirus for more than 14 days, they received the regular salary. The 53,573 non-active workers of the tourism, transportation industry and other sectors have guaranteed their transfer to other positions, and they receive the salary corresponding to the new position. If the transfer to another position is not feasible, they receive their basic salary.
6: Casi el 50% de los interruptos han sido reubicados en salud o en otras labores necesarias en estos momentos. En contraste con las grandes naciones como Estados Unidos y Brasil, entre otras, Cuba ha avanzado en el control de la pandemia y ha demostrado que es necesario la colaboración entre los países y la solidaridad entre los pueblos para combatir la pandemia y sus consecuencias para todos los países.
7: Almost fifty percent of the non-active workers have been transferred in the health field or other fields at the moment. In contrast, as other big nations such as the United States and Brazil, among others, Cuba has made progress in controlling the pandemic and has shown that collaboration and solidarity among the nations is necessary to fight the pandemic and the consequences affecting all countries.
6: Aprovechamos esta ocasión para agradecer las muestras de solidaridad recibidas hacia Cuba, al contingente Henry Enrique, a todo el personal médico cubano que hoy lucha en el mundo contra la COVID y otras enfermedades, por luchar junto a nosotros por el levantamiento del bloqueo de Estados Unidos contra Cuba y sobre todo Por reconocer que la labor que hacemos es humanitaria, digna, patriótica e internacionalista.
7: We take advantage of this opportunity to thank the shows of solidarity towards Cuba, the Henry Reed Brigade, and all the medical Cuban personnel that today fights COVID and other illnesses in the world. We thank you for your struggle alongside us to secure the lifting of the U.S. blockade against Cuba and, above all, for recognizing that the work that we do is humanitarian, dignifying, patriot, and internationalist.
6: Los trabajadores cubanos de la salud continuaremos llevando a cualquier rincón de la tierra nuestra ayuda solidaria y jamás defraudaremos la confianza que los pueblos han depositado en nosotros. Haremos ahora contra la COVID y mañana por seguir brindando salud y bienestar. Solo con la unidad y la solidaridad venceremos. Muchas gracias.
7: The Cuban health workers will continue to bring to every corner of our earth our help in solidarity and will never defraud the trust that the countries have placed in us today in the fight against COVID and tomorrow to continue bringing health and well being. Only in unity and solidarity we will prevail. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much, Hermes, for your words. Uh, Thank you for the example, Uh, Cuba's long uh, tradition of medical internationalism. It's incredible what you've been able to do, how you've been able to respond to the pandemic in spite of the blockade, uh, how you've been able to protect lives uh, within Cuba, but also around the world. And also I was um, amazed at what you've been able to do not just to protect people's lives from the virus, but also to protect people's livelihoods in in this crisis, Um, uh, supporting 100% of of workers' uh, income if they're not able to go to work, Um, providing childcare, for workers who need to continue going to work, essential workers. Um, in the US, we've done very little of that. Um, workers have been laid off in the tens of millions, um, don't have the child care that they need. Um, we're facing an eviction crisis. And so maybe a little bit later, we can hear more about both what, uh, what Cuba has done and, and what other countries have done around the world to address those economic and social impacts as well. Uh, but for now, um, I'm gonna move on to our next Speaker Vijay Prashad. Uh, Vijay is an Indian historian, a journalist, and an author of over 20 books, including The Darker Nations and most recently Washington Bullets. He's the chief editor of Leftward Books and director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Take it away, Vijay. Um, Chris, first, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, It's a great
8: honor to be with Deborah, with Rachel, with uh, Hermes with Izzy and later Tabitha. Um, it's great to follow Hermes, uh, Cuban doctors. I highly recommend people go to Cuban, Cuban Nobel.org. It's a campaign for the Henry Reeve Brigade to be given to be actually, actually the other way around, the Nobel Peace Prize to be honored uh, to give uh, its prize this year to the Cuban doctors for their remarkable job. Um, I'm going to be speaking in my eight minutes um, from the work done by the institute that I direct called Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. We've done two studies, which I encourage you to go and look at. Um, The first study is called Socialism and Corona Shock, where we look very carefully at the experience of Vietnam, Kerala, which is a state in India. Cuba and Venezuela you see what we were puzzled by was the fact that a country and not one of the four we looked at Laos has still today had no covid fatalities laos shares a border with the people's republic of china and it's seven and some million people no covid fatalities vietnam very poor country like Laos, shares a long border with China, till today, 35 fatalities. How is it possible that Cuba, Venezuela, Laos, Vietnam, and the Indian state of Kerala were to some extent able to break the chain of the infection? So we looked at it closely and published a study called Socialism and Corona Shock, and we came up with four different um, parameters that we, we thought were instructive. And I'll go over the four very quickly. The first one was that these governments and their populations took this pandemic and the virus scientifically. You see, whereas Boris Johnson and others had a hallucinatory attitude toward the virus, Donald Trump in the lead, Yair Bolsonaro, Narendra Modi of My Own India. But the governments of Vietnam, of Kerala, where KK Shalja, the health minister, immediately brought a commission, made a task force to look at what was being heard from the World Health Organization as early as January of 2020. They immediately created task forces and took a scientific attitude toward the virus. That's the first thing. Secondly, they had a public sector to turn to in Vietnam, in Kerala even, but more so in Cuba. The government immediately directed the public sector to start producing, you know, things that don't require an enormous technological capacity. PPE, protective equipment, masks, hand sanitizers and so on. These were produced at scale to such an extent that Vietnam, a very poor country, which had been bombed by the United States for decades. Vietnam sent protective equipment to the United States. Talk about the way aid flows. Actual medical aid went from socialist Vietnam, poor Vietnam, to one of the richest countries in the world, which didn't have the capacity to direct industry to produce masks and hand sanitizers and so on. There was, in fact, a shortage of PPE in the United States, whereas in these parts of the world, the public sector was brought to bear, essentially, to produce these goods. That's the second thing. First thing was a science-based attitude. Secondly, the public sector was brought to bear. Third, public action. Take Cuba as an example. In Cuba, 29,000 medical students left their dormitories and went door to door in the island of 11 million people to test every single Cuban. 29,000 medical students. The capacity for public action in a place like Cuba or Kerala is much greater than in the West, where non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and so on have professionalized public action and taken it out of the hands of ordinary people. Volunteering, volunteerism, you know, which the great Che Guevara made a foundation of Cuban society. Volunteerism is fundamental to Kerala society in India, where there is a communist government and where youth organizations immediately went out there to feed people, to feed the elderly, to make sure people will find to build washing basins in bus stations and so on. The level of public action in these countries was extraordinary. It's nothing that one sees in Italy or in the United Kingdom or United States or Brazil, so on, where public action has actually been delegitimized politically even, you know, public action is seen almost like dissent, unfortunately trade union activity and so on. The fourth Aspect that we looked at was internationalism. You see, these parts of the world didn't truck in basic disgusting racism like the Trump administration or the Bolsonaro administration, you know, talking about the China virus and this, that. They didn't waste time on that. They were internationalists. After all, the Henry Reeve Brigade didn't waste time wondering where the virus comes from in the same way as. The very brave and noble doctors of the Henry Brief Brigade went to tackle the Ebola virus. They were not worrying about where the virus came from. That's a waste of time. They were there to tackle the virus, to help people. That was essentially their motive. Internationalism was core, sending supplies. I already talked about Vietnam sending supplies to the United States. Two very quick points, and then I'll wrap up in a minute. You see, if we take the lessons from these socialistic parts of the world and, you know, some of you will debate, is Vietnam really socialist? Always happy to have that debate, friends. In this time, it's puzzling that these are the kinds of questions people ask when we see these countries have a public sector state intervention that provides great relief to people. That seriously is the question that you have in your head. Anyway, happy to have that discussion. The main issue before us is that we know the lessons we've learned. We need to learn further from them. The second document I want to point out to you from a tricontinental site is called Health is a political choice. A dossier we brought out earlier this year with a 16 point demand list from nurse unions around the world. I'm happy to share. This event with Nurses United and so on. But these are also nurses unions from Brazil, South Africa, India, Argentina and so on. Take a look at the 16 point demand from health is a political choice. The two quick final points I want to make. One, this vaccine that will be created must be a global vaccine. Look at how capitalism has disrupted pharmaceutical industries and how imperialism has impacted it as well. First, quickly, capitalism. 35 pharmaceutical companies have earnings in the $11 trillion range. Imagine that. They are just making money off it. Their sense that they are there to help people is minimal. So I just want you to think about how much money they make from these vaccines and so on. And I think Izzy has done a terrific job talking about the necessity for a non-profit vaccine. Imperialism. The American government bombed the Al Shifa pharmaceutical factory in Sudan in 1998 because Bill Clinton wanted to cover up evidence that he was having an affair. Now, I don't care about Bill Clinton's affair. I'm not a moral person like that, but I do care about the bombing. I'm very moral about the bombing of Sudan's only pharmaceutical factory, the Al Shifa factory in 1998. Recently, if you care, in Sudan, there was a Twitter campaign where the hashtag was medicine is non-existent. And do you know why the medicine is non-existent in Sudan? Because the United States blew up in 1998, its main pharmaceutical factory. So when we talk about a people's va- vaccine, non-profit vaccine, got to understand that countries around the world have had their medical infrastructure, pharmaceutical infrastructure destroyed. In the case of Sudan, by a bombing raid, the rest of the world by the debt crisis. And this is my final point. We have to argue for fundamental debt cancellation. Currently, the global south is experiencing an $11 trillion external debt crisis. We have calculated that essentially offshore tax havens are holding at a minimum $32 trillion of the wealth of the plutocracy in the planet. The external debt of the third world is $11 trillion. There should be an absolute cancellation of this debt so that all the resources in countries like Burkina Faso, in India, in Argentina, and so on, can be put towards tackling the pandemic, put towards healthcare care workers, and put towards the development and manufacturing of this vaccine. If you are not for total debt cancellation, You don't understand how we're going to be able to both tackle this vaccine and tackle the health crisis that the pandemic has produced and has revealed the deeper structural health crisis that the pandemic has revealed. Firstly, we need a better, robust public health sector. Secondly, we very much need a global vaccine and building the pharmaceutical capacity of countries in the poorer parts of the world. And thirdly, total debt cancellation. Anything less than that is going to be impossible. Once again, I want to ask you to all go to cubanobel.org. You must support the campaign for getting the Henry Reeve Medical Brigade the Nobel Prize. It's essential. It's part of our evolving campaign for an effective public health system around the world. I want to end by saying, it's not like capitalism has failed you, friends. Don't think that capitalism has failed you. Capitalism as a system was never designed for you. It was designed for the rich to make further money. It has not failed you. It has succeeded. It's time to overcome capitalism. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much, Vijay. Uh, Thank you for, again, another rousing call to international solidarity and for highlighting some of the concrete steps that an an internationalist movement will need to take to be able to tackle the pandemic, to achieve health justice, and showing that uh, it requires transforming not just our health systems, but our economic system as well. So I'm gonna move on now to our final speaker, Tobita Chow. Toby is an organizer, a political educator, and the director of Justice is Global, a special project of people's action, which is building a movement to win structural reforms to create a more equitable and sustainable global economy. Go ahead, Toby.
9: Thanks, Chris. Uh, And uh, thank you uh, all for being here. It's an honor to be on this panel with the other speakers. Um, uh, I want to begin by uh, uh, like recentering all of us in, in the stakes of, of what we're, we're talking about. Uh, the United States recently uh, surpassed 200,000 deaths uh, from COVID-19. Globally, the official death toll is uh, approaching 1 million. And the vast majority of these lives have been sacrificed to a combination of corporate greed, nationalism, and racism. Um, the vast majority of this death toll was completely necessary. Um, and what's maddening about this is that, like at a fundamental level, the solutions are, are just common sense. Uh, and I feel that the average seven-year-old w- would be able to come up with better approaches than uh, many of the leaders of some of the most powerful countries in the world, uh, including our, our President Trump. Um, so, since the pandemic started, uh, Justice is Global's work has, uh, has uh, focused on a couple of things. Um, one is building grassroots power uh, to demand that our government uh, take steps to promote global co- cooperation to the pandemic and set aside the disastrous nationalistic policies of the Trump administration. Uh, The other is to uh, uh, develop strategies and build infrastructure to respond to the rise of anti-China politics uh, in the U.S. this year, um, which Trump and the Republicans have made central to their uh, approach to the pandemic um, and counter what many are calling uh, politics of a new Cold War. Um, So there are... Alternatives that, I said, are just common sense. I want to refer to an article in the New York Times that was published in early April, so fairly early on in the course of this pandemic. Uh, It was titled, COVID-19 changed how the world does science together. Uh, It begins by mentioning the rise of nationalistic politics uh, in the United States in response to the pandemic, and then says, the world scientists, for the most part, have responded with a collective eye roll. While political leaders have locked their borders, scientists have been shattering theirs, creating a global collaboration unlike any in history. Normal imperatives like academic credit have been set aside. Online repositories make studies available months ahead of journals. Researchers have identified and shared hundreds of viral genome sequences. More than 200 clinical trials have been launched, bringing together hospitals, in laboratories around the globe. And then there's a quote from an Italian scientist. A scientist. Uh, I never hear scientists, true scientists, speak in terms of nationality. My nation, your nation, my language, your language, my geographic location, your geographic location. This is something that is really distant from true top-level scientists. Uh, and this is a sentiment that is familiar to me from the scientists that I know, if you know um, scientific researchers. This may be familiar to you as well. They care about finding real solutions to the problems that we fa- that we face and issues of, of profit and what nation gets the bragging rights for what discovery are, are typically not what, what, what drives the best scientific researchers that are trying to find solutions to the, this current crisis. Um, it is not just scientists uh, who would like to prioritize this international co- collaboration and set aside questions of profit and nationalism. Uh, The Pew Research Center recently released uh, the results of a poll that they did within the United States and a number of other countries around the world. And what they found were strong majorities uh, across all of these countries um, believing in the value of international cooperation. So the majority of people in the US and a number of other countries uh, stated that if our country had cooperated more with other countries, the number of coronavirus cases would have been lower. this country. So again, this this included majorities with the United States. The majority of Americans uh, believe that American lives would have been saved if the US government had done more to cooperate with countries around the world uh, in combating this pandemic. Um, And and beyond just this specific issue of the pandemic, uh, we also see majorities believing that uh, countries around the world should act as part of a global community that works together to solve problems. And on that question, A majority of Republican voters believed in that statement that we need global community to work together to solve problems. A majority of Republican voters believe in that principle. Um, So uh, thinking from the perspective of our work at Justice is Global, which includes building political support for more global cooperation uh, to address the pandemic and the other global challenges we face, we see ample opportunity here uh, to build that support Um, And uh, the problems that we see in the approaches from uh, some of our political leaders um, are coming from regular people. Uh, They're coming from a handful of powerful people at the top. Um, uh, The uh, response from the US government has uh, been to scapegoat China uh, in order to distract people from the catastrophic failures of the Trump administration to protect uh, the American people from this pandemic. Uh, massive escalation in the U.S.-China conflict, attacking the World Health Organization and uh, other forms of global cooperation. Um, We see this uh, very starkly around the issue of developing a vaccine. Uh, Deborah er earlier uh, mentioned the problem of vaccine nationalism. Um, What we need to see uh and like i think the average seven-year-old could come up with very easily what we need to see is uh, for researchers uh, all around the world to collaborate as deeply as possible uh, to uh, research uh, treatment in a vaccine and then any progress that is made uh, on that uh, needs to be uh, made freely available to everyone all around the world Um, and there are have been systems uh, set up to try to establish these forms of cooperation this includes uh, COVID technology access pool at the World Health Organization, uh, which would uh, ensure that uh, treatments and uh, any treatments uh, or vaccine would be uh, uh, shared uh, around the world. Uh, there's also the COVAX system that I think one of the other speakers mentioned earlier that would uh, create a system of international cooperation around the distribution of a COVID vaccine and around fair pricing uh, for a vaccine as well Um, and uh, the united states uh, and many other uh, uh, countries in the global north uh, are are refusing to sign on to these uh, efforts Um, and uh, i should note also that uh, the government of china has refused to do so uh, as well uh, as an organizer of the US. Uh, my main critiques are directed at my own government, but I think it's important to understand that we're in a, a sort of toxic uh, global dynamic and that there is also a rise in Chinese nationalism uh, that is uh, an obstacle to international cooperation um, uh, from that end. Um, so this is driven by uh, geopolitical interests, the idea that uh, being the first to a co- uh, COVID vaccine can be a source of status and power uh, on the global stage. Uh, it is also driven by the uh, uh, profit motives of pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies uh, in the countries that are blocking these forms of international cooperation. Um, uh, and this is a disastrous, uh, it is maddening that this is happening. Uh, in our work at Justice is Global, again, we are building political support uh, in grassroots power for an agenda of uh, global cooperation to end the pandemic, which includes uh, research and distribution into uh, hopefully a COVID vaccine, along with uh, investment in public health infrastructure globally, and uh, the distribution of all medical supplies, um, and debt cancellation for the most at-risk countries uh, in the world. Um, uh, And this is urgently needed to address Uh, the COVID crisis. Um, We should also note that the very same forms of global cooperation that are needed to overcome the pandemic are also needed to meet the other great global challenges that face us in the 21st century. Uh, This includes uh, global poverty, nuclear disarmament, and another very salient problem, the climate crisis. All the same challenges and obstacles and needs that we see around global cooperation to end the pandemic are also needed, even more so, to meet the climate crisis. The need to share research, knowledge, and technology freely and not hoard it, to not let intellectual property rights and profits get in the way of that, and to ensure that uh, all countries around the world, and especially the lower-income countries of the global south, have access to the resources, investment, the financing they need uh, to implement these solutions um, uh, for their own people. Um, These are all problems that do not know uh, uh, borders. And um, these are all issues where our destinies are tied together um, all around the world.
0: Thank you so much, Toby. Uh, Again, uh, thank you so much for highlighting the extreme urgency of building a global movement to respond to these multiple crises that we face. Uh, And something that you said really struck me, the fact that the solutions are easy, they're common sense, they're right in front of us. Um, Even a majority of the public, even a majority of Republicans here in the US, as you said, support. Those common sense solutions support international uh, collaboration, um, and yet our leaders, our so-called leaders, are not taking that initiative and not doing the public's will. So obviously, we need to do we need to do something to force them to do so. We need to build the power to force uh, the ruling classes in our various countries to. Uh, act in the interests of all of humanity, as as Deborah said uh, before, which you know is in their own interests as well. So I want to um, transition now. We have about 14, 15 minutes left for questions. So if we could bring uh, all of our speakers back, and I think we're going to lead off actually um, with a question related to what I was just saying. You know, how is it that we can? Uh, work together, link up our efforts, and uh, build the kind of power that we need, not just within our own countries, but across borders to win the solutions that you all have been putting forward. Um, And actually, maybe um, I can uh, make that question a little more specific. We had a question from the audience, from Sarah, I believe, um, who asked, what can we do as patients to support the struggles of healthcare workers, how do we link up and fight together? Um, so maybe we can lead off with that question. Uh, maybe uh, Deborah, Rachel, Hermes, the healthcare workers, can um, begin with a response to that. So, uh, uh, who would like to? Deborah, would you like to lead off? Go ahead.
2: Yeah. So. Um the national nurses united um, and then also our sister group uh, global nurses united uh, has long held that the only way we can get anywhere with uh, social reforms and making sure that uh, our communities are protected is to work with our patients and our communities Uh, when we had our campaign for safe ratios. Uh, We actually had a campaign to tell um, patient stories because that made a huge difference in swaying public uh, sympathy and public uh, support. Um, The politicians couldn't deny the patient stories. (coughs) Excuse me. And uh, through working with uh, the unions, Uh, and our communities for a social movement, it really does uh, make a huge difference in working uh, together and um, it is transformative when we're working across borders. Uh, We did go to Cuba, we did go to Taiwan, we did go to Canada, and they were quite honest about what worked well what didn't work well so that we could bring that back and show our communities that there are successes that um the the media and the politicians are lying to us when we when they say uh it can't be done so it is uh crucial uh that we do involve our patients in this fight because their input is invaluable. I really did appreciate um, the comments that were made uh, by Izzy, uh, because they make a huge, huge impact. Uh, Just like uh, Audie Barkin um, has uh, utilized his uh, fight with uh, um, his disease to Leverage that to make change and move the discussion in the United States on whether Medicare for all is um, even possible.
0: Thank you so much, Deborah. Um, Rachel? Uh, Hermes, would you like to to chime in, um, and maybe um, actually Guillermo, could you translate the question for for Hermes? What can patients and and just the public do right now to um, to to help uh, healthcare workers in your fights right now?
4: Yeah, um, I would agree with what Deborah was saying. Um,
0: Looks like we might be losing Rachel again. Guillermo, could you come on and and, and translate the question? Yeah, uh, it looks like you're muted, Guillermo. Could you unmute yourself?
7: Okay. Uh, la pregunta Hermes es qué pueden hacer los pacientes y el público en general. Para hacer la tarea de
0: los trabajadores sanitarios más exitosa. And what what can what can we do abroad uh, specifically to help uh, Cuban healthcare workers uh, in their in their efforts?
7: ¿Y qué pueden hacer los colegas que están fuera de Cuba para ayudarlos a ustedes en la tarea eh, que llevan adelante?
6: En nuestra experiencia, creo que lo más importante que podrían hacer los pacientes y e el pueblo en general es la disciplina, la disciplina que hay que tener en estos momentos para evitar la transmisión de la enfermedad y mantener las medidas eh, higiénicas necesarias. En un um grupo de, en el tema de los pacientes, creo que lo eh, más importante es mantener los tratamientos y mantener, y que en ellos se cumplan los protocolos, porque en esta epidemia que nos ha invadido, en que todos debemos colaborar, creo que nos ha tocado a los trabajadores de la salud tener el protagonismo. El protagonismo eh, en cuanto al tratamiento y a la protección de los pacientes. In,
7: uh, in relation with the, uh, with the general public, um, it is very important that uh, there will be general discipline uh, and to keep the hygiene high. Uh, and in regards to patients, it is important that, um, that protocols be uh, followed and that the treatments be followed as well. This will be a way uh, for, um, for the uh, system to work efficiently
6: las experience en todos los países han dado que cuando se aplican las medidas de distanciamiento social y de disciplina social la transmisión de la pandemia disminuye.
7: The uh, the worldwide experience is that uh, when uh, there is a social distancing and uh, the protocols are followed the uh, the levels of the uh, of the, uh, the, the coronavirus uh, decrease.
6: Ahora también es necesario llevar la solidaridad de todos a aquellos países que tienen menos posibilidades, aquellos países que no tienen un um sistema de salud seguro, eh, bajo el pensamiento que tiene Cuba tem de que nosotros no estamos dando lo que nos sobra, estamos los compartiendo lo que tenemos para lograr un um mundo mejor para toda la humanidad.
7: Um, in uh, in their experiences, uh, the uh, Cuba is, has shown solidarity with other countries that are less advanced in this field. And uh, he's stressing that Cuba does not share whatever they don't uh, need, but they are sharing the things that they do have uh,
0: with other countries and other uh, peoples. Thank you so much, Hermes, for your for your words and for your um your solidarity, uh, and for being with us here today. Um, Rachel, are you uh, there? Is your audio on? Would you like to chime in? Sure.
4: Um, I would just agree, really, with what other people have been saying. With Nurses United, um, we encourage the public to get involved with our campaigns. Um, Obviously, people can donate to the different campaigns that are running, um, but also just having those conversations as well with their friends, family, um, and making sure these conversations are Continuing and not just in our bubbles, but you know, with other people that we meet.
0: Thanks, Rachel. We have just about uh, five minutes left. I want to follow up with a question, and maybe um, Izzy, Vijay, Toby, you could chime in on this one. Um, We heard about uh, obviously the need to combat vaccine internet or vaccine nationalism with international solidarity and, and cooperation. And Izzy, you talked about some of the efforts that just treatment is you know, beginning to ramp up and uh, uh, the campaign you're beginning to develop. Um, I'd be interested to hear also from Vijay, from Toby about any other campaigns that are, that are actually gearing up right now. What can we do to fight against vaccine nationalism concretely, how can we link up these uh, incipient fights uh, across borders. So maybe, um, Izzy, if you want to kick it off and then VJ and Toby can chime in.
5: Um, yeah, um, well, the response to this pandemic can't be a zero-sum game. Either we all win or we all lose, as everyone said. It is a global pandemic. And as various examples in other countries have shown, unless the virus is under control everywhere, it can't be under control anywhere and vaccine nationalism is incredibly harmful because it means that the people who need the vaccine won't get priority necessarily and it will be the people who can pay for it who get it first so poorer countries will inevitably lose out and it's a pro- it's a product of a system that is broken where your ability to access drugs the drugs you need is based on your ability to pay and pharma companies are the ones left dictating the price and this pandemic should be our chance to change that by demanding that the knowledge and technologies needed to make vaccines are shared for example through the CTAP um, so that manufacturing can be scaled up quickly but at the moment we're just seeing business as usual but I think that for just treatment we've already been campaigning around many of these issues around um, drug development and um, people getting access to the drugs and I think that we need to make sure that it's known that people's health should always come before profit and that health should be a a common good. But unfortunately, in a capitalist society, this isn't how it works and everything's monetized. I think that it's important we rethink the systems and develop different ways to come together across borders.
0: Thanks, Izzy. Um, Vijay, do you want to chime in?
8: First, well said, Izzy. I agree with everything you just said. It was wonderfully said and very clear. But let me just say two quick things. One is, Chris has asked, is there a campaign? UN AIDS, which is a UN organization, has a campaign called the People's Vaccine. So I would recommend you go and have a look at UN AIDS and what they're doing. But beyond that, the pharmaceutical capacity of the world is broken because of privatization, because of neoliberalism. You see... Korea companies don't have the refrigeration capacity to carry the vaccine around the world. So it's it's actually a global supply chain problem. We need to fight to make sure that you have regional pharmaceutical capacities that are regionally run, not necessarily run within the boundaries of a country, a Southern African pharmaceutical capacity, a Horn of Africa pharmaceutical capacity, it's not just about saying, let's release the, you know, uh, the, fa- the, the, the the vaccines formula online. How are you going to make the drug? If you don't have pharmaceutical capacity, okay. releasing the formula is insufficient. You can't ship it because Korea companies don't have the, the freezing capacity and you can't produce it. This raises the question, friends, of a broken international pharmaceutical industry. We need regional, publicly financed, pharmaceutical <laughs> manufacturing you know, networks. And that's very much what needs to be on the agenda of our conversation.
0: Thanks, Vijay. Um, I, that's a really fascinating point. And it dovetails with some of the failures in the international supply chains that we've seen around uh, PPE production and distribution, um, which has been a huge challenge for us here as well. And so, um, Toby, are you are you there? Would you like to chime in on on this question of um, just broadly what we can do across borders internationally? How can we link up our fights for uh, vaccine internationalism and and just broadly to ensure that uh, everyone little... around the world gets the care that they need right now? Are you there, for Toby? Toby, are you there? Okay, it sounds like Toby may be um, cutting out. So we are just at about time. So I'm gonna go ahead and just thank all of our speakers. Um, So... Maybe we'll hear from Toby. Go ahead. The internet in the United yeah.
8: States appears to be terrible, Chris. <laughs> the
0: United are, States has become a backward country. I'm afraid we are we are having challenges with the internet today. Are we, um, Toby? One more time, are you there? If not, I'm going to go ahead and and wrap things up. Okay. So uh, again, thank you so much to all of our speakers, our brilliant uh, okay. healthcare workers, activists. and and scholars on this panel. It's been an incredible discussion. Uh, Thanks to everyone in the audience who tuned in for the live stream. Uh, I really sincerely hope that we're all coming away from this this panel with a better sense of how we can link our day-to-day fights in our workplaces and our communities uh, with the kind of uh, efforts that are going on globally to build the kind of international solidarity and cooperation that we need in this moment to beat the pandemic and to overcome all of the crises that we're facing right now. So thank you again. Also, if you enjoyed this session and if you'd like to help uh, TWT sustain their really important work through uh, this festival and beyond, please do consider supporting them at theworldtransformed.org backslash support. Um, I believe some other links to um, the speakers' uh, own organizations and campaigns Uh, been in the chat. So uh, check those out as well. I'll also just mention if you're interested in getting involved in National Nurses United's campaign to transform our healthcare system and to fight for economic and social justice and climate justice around the world, um, we'll drop a link in the chat uh, where you can sign up uh, to join our Medicare for All campaign. And we'll send you more information about how you can get involved and we'll send you uh, alerts about more opportunities for political education like this. Um, So finally, before we sign off, this year uh, at The World Transformed, arts workers with TWT wanted to offer a more dramatic take on political education. So they've created short radio plays, which you could hear throughout the festival uh, and after certain sessions in the program. And for this session, we have a short reading of The Plague by Albert Camus, uh, which is scarily close to our experience recently with COVID. So the link will be posted in the chat and then you can follow it to listen to the radio play on YouTube right after the session. Thank you again to everybody who joined. Thank you to our panel and solidarity forever.
6: View
7: the full TWT 20 program and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at the